Screening and diagnostic technologies can change people's behavior by reclassifying them. For example, as cancer patients. On a societal level, technological responses to disease can transform the meaning of a disease category and our knowledge about the safety and efficacy of preventive and therapeutic interventions. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Robert Aronowitz, Chair of the Department of History and Sociology of Science at the University of Pennsylvania. As part of the journal's Case Studies in Social Medicine series, Dr. Aronowitz has co-authored a perspective article about the instability of medical knowledge and the impact of looping effects in medicine. Dr. Aronowitz, in your perspective article, you described the case of Mr. B, who underwent robot-assisted radical prostatectomy and later regretted that decision. So what upset this patient most about what he learned in the years after he had the procedure? Sure. Mr. B is an economist, and he's an informed patient, and he didn't go into this decision to have a radical prostatectomy lightly. He consulted a medical oncologist and reviewed the medical literature himself and was moved by the consensus recommendations that suggested that surgery was a plausible response to a good prognosis prostate cancer picked up by screening, as well as the best data that was available at the time, which was clinical trials that followed patients with early stage cancer. And over time, it seemed to be a survival advantage to doing surgery over expectant management or watchful waiting. What his regrets were was that a few years after his surgery, from which he suffered some side effects that are unfortunately predictable and typical of radical prostatectomies, incontinence in the short run and impotence in the long run. Anyway, these studies came out that were randomized trials first of screening per se, which were done decades after screening became popular and diffused throughout American society. And the two randomized control trials that were published in the New England Journal at the time, one showed no mortality benefit to screening and the other was equivocal, showing some benefit in some subsets of the population and a great cost in terms of physical cost and emotional and financial. And then a few years after that, there was a study of a more randomized trial of watchful waiting versus surgery and didn't show a clear benefit. So he was regretful over having exposed himself to surgery when new evidence seemed to upend what was there before. So in your article, you discussed the concept of looping effects. Can you explain what you mean by that term and how did looping effects influence the care that Mr. B received? I borrowed the term looping effects from a philosopher, Ian Hacking, and he has a more cosmic and general sense of the term having to do with the fact that the human sciences, which study people, which subsumes a lot of clinical medicine, often assumes that the objects of study are, and especially the classifications applied to people, are objective, they're definite, and they have properties that are independent of the observer and the act of studying. When they don't, that is, the way we classify people actually changes them. The objects of clinical study are moving targets, and this sets us up for what he calls looping effects, which is a kind of feedback loop where how we classify people changes the way people behave and then changes our classifications and then changes the way people behave. Now, in prostate cancer, Mr. B's problem, what happened in the decades following the introduction of PSA screening is, to my mind, a classic example of a looping effect. In the absence of any, like I said, evidence that screening was beneficial, it diffused widely. And as a result of screening, many more people were diagnosed with prostate cancer. When people looked around and clinicians and epidemiologists measured, they perceived that prostate cancer, 
the screening and the treatment seem to be effective because the survival seems to be improving and the clinical picture of the disease seems to have changed. Clinicians from the pre-PSA era mostly met patients who had metastatic disease that no treatment was going to cure. And now you've had a disease that seemed to be curable and many people seem to be surviving prostate cancer. In fact, current five-year survival rates of prostate cancer are in the high 90s. And the looping effect part of this is that I postulate that what largely happened, I mean, there may be some effectiveness to prostate cancer screening and treatments, don't get me wrong, but you can explain a lot of this phenomena without much in the way of real scientific efficacy. That is, people see the case fatality, the survival improving, therefore many more people participate in screening that further increases the apparent improved case fatality and survival rates, leading to more people participating in screening. And Mr. B and his doctors were, in a sense, caught in this web, this feedback cycle, and did not know they were participating in it. At least Mr. B didn't at first. And he came to regret the fact that the larger context in which people sort of gave TSA screening a pass in the absence of evidence from a randomized controlled trial was very problematic. So outside of prostate cancer, can you give some other examples of how changes in the definition or the name of disease has shaped its epidemiology and the clinical profile? Yes, there are many examples from the history of cancer. Long before there was high-tech screening, the American Society for the Control of Cancer, which is the progenitor organization of the American Cancer Society, had a campaign that started in the early teens that lasted through my adolescence in the 1970s and 60s that I call the Do Not Delay campaign. Basically, women, it was a largely gender-based campaign, were implored to seek medical care to examine their bodies for cancer danger signs things like bleeding that doesn't stop and a sore that doesn't heal, a lump on the breast. And if they saw one of these signs, they should rush to their doctor. And they were often then, in the case of breast lumps especially, encouraged to have radical mastectomies. And over the course of decades, take the example of breast cancer, due to this kind of a looping effect, women observed that other women were living with cancer when cancer wasn't there before because of more participation in this do not delay campaign. They also noticed that their cancer wasn't necessarily deadly. Some people seemed to be surviving it. This led many, many, many more women to survey their body and go to doctors. Just before there was mammography, and mammography, I think, was another feedback looping cycle, you had a widely increased incidence of breast cancer, but without any change in the age-adjusted mortality for cancer. So it was a looping effect. That is, people perceived change. They didn't realize that their own actions of participating in the screening campaign were changing the very apparent epidemiology and fundamentals of the disease that suggested that things were working. And it's kind of like an economic boom cycle. And they often come to a bust at some point. In the case of this Do Not Delay campaign, there were a lot of skeptics in the pathologists and oncologists and clinicians in the 60s and 70s that pointed out that the age-adjusted mortality from breast cancer had not budged. Something was odd here. You had this wildly increased prevalence of disease and sensitive disease without really impacting the mortality. So as a possible remedy to that sort of looping effect, you say in your article that some clinicians and researchers have proposed renaming cancers and precancers that are unlikely to cause harm, taking the word cancer away. So what's been the response to that proposal and how would it work? Okay. Well, I offered it, but I also said in the article that so far there's been limited uptake of this idea. But I think, frankly, from a historical perspective and a health policy perspective, the very idea that a group of well-respected clinicians are pushing the idea of renaming a disease, which implicitly and explicitly acknowledges the fact that 
how we name and classify things matters. And in the case of cancer naming, the word cancer evokes fear. And many people, including Dr. B's doctor, looking back at the old data, think a cancer is a cancer is a cancer and sort of equate it and don't understand how not all cancers are destined to kill you and the word cancer might not be appropriate in this circumstance. So I, I think you know, how it might work, you know, literally, I think some of the terms we've used in medicine to deal with this and a series of other related problems, things like the terms overdiagnosis, overtreatment, the concept of choosing wisely, but also the very fact that a group of physicians are thinking about renaming things is an acknowledgement that we need to take some responsibility for the fear that the medical system produces, which fear can be sometimes a good thing. We should be afraid of lions and other things, but Sometimes our fears are exaggerated or they're pumped up by our own medical practices and leads to weighing decisions under uncertainty, which most clinical decisions are made under, that we later come to regret, like Mr. B. So I don't want to overstate the practical benefits of renaming various in situ carcinomas and good prognosis prostate cancers, indolent lesions of uncertain significance. I'm not sure it's going to catch on. It's not exactly a catchy name. But I think it is significant that at least parts of organized medicine are taking the responsibility for our classification seriously. Another possible solution that you suggest in your article is that the social as well as the biologic effects of medical technology should be considered when those technologies are first approved and disseminated. If that were the case, who would do that? Who would be responsible for taking social considerations into account? Well, I think, first thing, the clinician in practice, Mr. B's doctor in the case, could have educated Mr. B. First, he had to be educated himself to the fact that the clinical trials they were reliant on were done in the pre-PSA era. And there should have been a clinical suspicion that the cancer that they were dealing with now, the one that's been radically transformed by PSA screening and the classification and the diagnosis so widely diffused, was not necessarily the same disease. And there should be problems in drawing inferences from those past studies to the present. So I think it's, you know, the clinician in practice has to be something of a working social epidemiologist and social historian to understand how diagnoses and diseases are not constant or changing, especially when drawing inferences from the past into the present. That's like number one. Number two, I think you have to be an astute observer of the medical scene. I was a practicing clinician in the early 90s when general internists and other primary care physicians were being implored by different expert advisory groups to initiate a discussion with your patient about starting hormone replacement therapy. And I was of the opinion at that time that I wasn't going to initiate such discussions. You know, sometimes people think shared decision-making has no valence or isn't initiating discussion in and of itself is not a harmful thing, but it's a biased coin. It's going to lead to more diagnoses of hormone depletion and more treatments. And I think the clinician needs to sort of read the conflicts of interest, the limitations of the medical studies at the moment, ask why a disease or a problem that wasn't a problem before all of a sudden has such sway, and develop sort of an informed skepticism about just having a discussion with patients about something that maybe doesn't need to be part of the discussion at all. So there's no magic answer to this. I think learning something about medical history, studying a lot of case studies, I think history is actually very valuable. It's why I do a lot of both research and teaching in it, can help inoculate, educate, socialize clinicians to be skeptical and see the social influences. And they're not only the nefarious interests of people who have a profit to be made, device makers, test makers, specialists selling their wares. It's also these kind of looping effects that change the perceptions of efficacy and extent of disease. And there's no better way to do this than to teach history, to learn from our good and bad clinical examples and try to apply them to the uncertain present. Thank you, Dr. Aronowitz.